Welcome to the NOI Podcast, uncovering the path to successful real estate investing. I'm your host, Brent Farkas. On this show, we do a deep dive into uncovering the keys to successfully investing in real estate. You will learn from industry rock stars and thought leaders specializing in large multifamily syndications to furnished short-term rentals and everything in between. Whether you are a seasoned investor operator looking to scale or a first-time investor looking to create passive income through real estate, this podcast is for you. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so you will be notified of future episodes. Let's get to it. All right, guys, welcome back to the NOI podcast. Uh, Today, my guest is Jake Clopton. Jake is the founder and president of Clopton Capital, which is a financial intermediary that arranges and structures commercial real estate finance, specializing in the one to 50 plus million debt and equity space. Their typical clients are private investors, family offices, and real estate companies. Welcome commercial mortgage broker, Jake Clopton. Welcome, man. Hey, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Absolutely, man. It's it's, uh, it's really great to finally connect. I'm excited about this uh, episode because we've talked a lot to um, different investors and in different asset classes, but we haven't uh, tackled lending. So I'm glad you're on and we can talk a little bit about that. It's going to be kind of a 101 for commercial lending. So Yeah, no, uh, let's get it going. All I do all day. So happy to <laughs> before that, maybe tell us a little bit of kind of your background and how you got into it. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I have kind of a weird genesis into commercial lending. Before I did this, I worked for a, uh, a like a prop trading company here in Chicago. Um, we traded like interbank hedging product futures. So like three month LIBOR and Fed funds futures and treasuries and all this stuff. And then so twofold. One, you can only work from 1 a.m. to 4 p.m. for so long. And then uh, two, around like uh, 2008 ish, 9 ish era, right? Banking crisis. And, uh, you know, interest rates went to zero and you really need volatility, right? And movement to make uh, money doing that stuff. Um, so at the time, right, like that was a banking crisis and and people were having difficulty finding money. Right. So you can see where I'm going here. So, you know, me kind of getting out of trading and knowing what was going on, just kind of in the you know, in the economy in general. Um, the idea was to be an intermediary, finding capital providers and hooking the borrowers up with them. And that just very quickly turned into, you know, strictly real estate focus because I just really enjoyed the real estate stuff. Um, and then 12 years later, man, here, here we are. Yeah. Was it always in the commercial space or did you do residential for a while? I dabbled a bit in residential because just being in type of the, you know, the space we're in, I get a lot of people that call me up looking for like residential investment property loans, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's just a different market, right? I mean, we, yeah, we, we yeah. did some of that stuff for a little bit, but I'm not trying to run too many races, you know what I mean? So I'm just trying to stick to commercial. Yeah. I mean, the products are all vastly different, aren't they? It sounds similar, but it's really yeah. just two completely different industries. The biggest difference is residential loans, they start with the person and go to the property. Commercial starts with the property and goes to the person. So when I started kind of researching multifamily and different commercial assets, just that it's flipped, yep, you know? Yep. Yep. When I like, first, when I get like a deal in, um, I don't even really ask for the personal stuff on the guy at first. I'm like, let me make sure the property works. And then I assume if you're buying a $2 million building, you, you know, you can buy it. So tell us about how that works. Do you have like a quick and dirty analyzer? You're kind of just always analyzing deals quickly to see if you want to go in further or how does that work? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been doing it for so long. I think you just get an ability to kind of just size it up right at the top of your head, you know, just by looking at it. So as soon as I see a deal, I, I usually know 
they can either work out or can't. And also which one of our capital providers is potentially going to be the right fit for. We tend to, you know, have really good understanding of our capital providers and then really like what their money is trying to go out the door for. Mm-hmm. And then when we get a deal in, you know, we already know it's going to go to XYZ guy. If there's a deal I get in, that's kind of unique, but I'm like, Hey, the economics of it look really good. And somebody should finance this thing, you know, we'll create a marketplace around it. But yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I usually know where it's going. Yeah. Let's talk about COVID and just how things have changed, the guidelines, restrictions. What, what have you seen in the last you know, year, year and a half? I guess the general theme is just everything's more difficult, right? I mean, you know, when we were in the thick of it, man, it was difficult to do anything, right? I mean, for instance, like buying a property, like the you couldn't get recordings, right? I mean, nobody was there at the local government office. The title... You know, you'd be doing a deal and all of a sudden everybody at the title office got COVID, <laughs> so I had to shut down for two weeks. Yeah. Oh, um, so there's some of that. But then, you know, the, just the, the other stuff like, you know, in, in apartments, right? You have the eviction moratoriums and then you have rent relief that's supposed to be happening, but it's not coming through. And I was seeing like apartment buildings that were 100% occupied, but then you would get into it and there was only like 70% of the people were actually paying. Mm. That's, that, uh, that's different today. Right. You know, most of the stuff I look at had, in, in, in all asset types is had really, really overcome a lot of those challenges, even retail. Right. I mean, the retail properties I'm looking at, you know, a lot of those guys have uh, have caught up some 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 wall. Right. There's just going to be some tenants that dug themselves into such a big mm-hmm. hole. There's no way mm-hmm. out. Right. But, you know, for the most part, I think things are starting to normalize and, you know, the aging reports look better. Yeah. COVID reserves, is that still kind of a prerequisite for a new loan? I'm starting to see less of it. Okay. The guys are really starting with the COVID reserves, like right off the bat, was like Fannie and Freddie, okay. right? Commercial product. That's how they, they kept doing loans through this whole thing and convincing investors to buy their properties. So, hey, even if the thing doesn't work for a year, I've got 12 months of debt service, right? I think that's been dialed back to like nine months and for like full leverage. And then, you know, as you go down in LTV, they'll, they'll dial all that back. The, the thing that will, that will really, you know, push all those code reserves out is there's a lot of liquidity out this, uh, in the system looking for places to lend and invest in. I would say there's more liquidity than deals right now. So I think to, to get deals and to transact, those lenders are going to have to become more and more competitive. And then, you know, those COVID reserves are probably one of the first things. Okay. Not that many deals out there as I'm meeting brokers and out walking properties and the deals that are out there, you know, it's like you start underwriting these deals. You're like, I don't know how to make them work. Yeah, they're expensive, bro. Yeah, everything's expensive. What does that stage look like for your underwriting at the LOI stage? As an investor, you know, team, would we be then coming to you shopping the financing during the LOI process or wait till the purchase and sale? No, I think LOI is actually a good spot to start. Okay. What, What I usually like to see is at least an understanding of purchase price. Yeah. Right. It, and because like, you know, sometimes I do get deals that uh, like sent to me that are just like an OM. They're like, Hey, give me a proof. Of so I, you don't even know where you can buy this thing yet. You know, let, let's at least get an, an LOI in place and work on the PSA and we can start sizing financing. Part of the problem is that if you don't have that, like I can't ask questions, I can't get information. The seller's not going to give you anything. You, you know what I mean? So, you know, at, at least having that LOI stage in place where, you know, seller at least send you some P&Ls, maybe rent roll, stuff like that. That's really the time to start. Yeah. Right. As far as like the stuff that's out there, everything seems pricey. Yeah. Right. My theory is that in retrospect, it may not be as pricey as mm-hmm. it appears mm-hmm. because I, I think what's lagging behind is 
you know, so, okay, so you have all these inflationary pressures, right, that are kind of happening out there. Prices are going up, yada, yada. So the Fed stepped in, put $5 trillion out there, and, or, you know, the government did, and, and they propped up asset prices, right, through QE and all this stuff. So asset prices have gone through the roof, right? So purchase prices mm-hmm. for us have gone through the roof. What, what's kind of lagging is rent growth. Mm-hmm. And rent growth is one of those things that, you know, does kind of lag behind like CPI and other inflationary stuff. But we're just starting to see that pick up now. Mm-hmm. And I think you can very quickly see rent growth catch up to the pace of asset prices so that like, hey, you know, it's a $10 million deal today with a $400,000 NOI, but it could very quickly go to five. Mm-hmm. Or six, right? Um, if you know, if your inflationary pressure really pick up, mm-hmm. so you know, there there is something to be said for you know, kind of like what's expected in the short term through just general economic trends and inflation. Yeah, a lot of these, you know, you'd be projected what hold them seven to ten years. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think you know the the, the typical commercial loan is going to be a ten year fix, right, and then reevaluate. So yeah, I would say the hold period and you know, kind of your investment horizon is going to be somewhere around ten years. I think it's really hard to, you know, look at your crystal ball and figure out 10 years from now. Um, yeah. But I think you can certainly figure out three to five years yeah. at least, right? Let's talk about the different products that you have. Yep. Give me an idea of kind of how you figure out what's the best type of product for, you know, this acquisition. Sure. Yeah. So for me, all like, you know, w- when I get a deal in, what's the most helpful thing for me to figure out what loan product to use is get the guy on the phone and have him walk me through his strategy, right? And a lot in, in like also what the ownership structure looks like, right? If it's, you know, eh, it's a fully stabilized deal and it's just me and I don't care about recourse and all this stuff, fine. We'll do like just a regular conventional one, right? If, if it's a fully stabilized deal and it's like, yeah, I'm going to own 5% of it and I'm going to syndicate out all of the rest of it. I know there's going to be recourse problems, right? So now we're talking about, you've got to, I've got to, kind of look at who's, you know, the guarantees a little differently. So probably, you know, if it's, an, it's a multifamily, I'm leaning towards agency, right? For non-recourse kind of high leverage, yeah. syndicated stuff, right? Because you've mm-hmm. got to pay investors, right? So you need high leverage to get those. Yeah. If it's a transitional scenario, right? So the guy's buying a C-class property in B market, he's going to bring the C to a B, pop rents, you know, and then recapitalize after three years. That's a bridge, right? That And that's something that you can capitalize pretty high. Right, maybe up to like eighty-five percent of total cost or something like that, because you're you're expecting okay. value growth, and that initial eighty-five percent LTC mm-hmm. going in is going to end up being a seventy once my assumptions, you know, pan out. So you know, I go into the deal and I, I'm underwriting it to basically where uh, lease comps are today, and I know if I can hit that, then you know that eighty-five is going to work out. Real well. How long is that bridge usually until you roll that over and refinance? Uh, I think you know your your typical bridge terms are going to be. 24, 36 month initial term with two, you know, one year extensions most likely. So the down the middle bridge term is a three one one. Okay, and those are recourse, right? Uh, no, the vast majority of them are not recourse. Um, a lot of them are non recourse, right? The recourse lenders are gonna be a little bit more flexible, right, and not have as many like reserves and all this stuff, right? Because they're leaning on your personal recourse. Just if you know, if we're doing a non recourse deal, just expect more structure. Right. For instance, if you have a large capital expenditure budget, right, they're going to want all of that held in reserve, right, at the property level because they're not coming after you. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Interesting. So let's talk about the balance sheet partners, kind of those key partnerships and what a great solid team kind of looks like. From my perspective, to get a deal done, right, I mean, on the ownership side, I'm looking for, you know, 
sponsor strength and sponsor experience. At least two years in in, in that asset type. You know, yeah, yeah, like at least two years of owning something similar, right? I see a lot of people that maybe are lacking in, you know, financial strength or experience. Kind of like there's there, there's some private investors out there that'll basically come in as the GP and sign on stuff, right? With like a fee or something. Like that. You can't scour the internet for guys like that. I think they would be. They would be guaranteeing ten billion dollars worth of debt very yeah. quickly, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I know there's guys out there that do that, um, and I have syndicators that you know they're like, yeah, well, I've got to find my GP, right, or my my sponsor uh, guarantor, right? Uh, everything in real estate is always kind of pieced together. If, if somebody brings me a deal and they're saying, hey, I got to have terms on this right now, and they don't have a clue who that's going to be, maybe we'll wait till that comes along, right? Because um, that's one of the pieces of a puzzle. Uh, but, you know, I, I think, you know, with, if you see a guy that's maybe done a deal before, or, you know, he's got that guy coming along, but they're going to raise some additional equity. Yeah, I mean, we can work with that. Investors coming maybe from the residential side, there's definitely that fear of like the timing of all of that coming together, you know, and you're saying piecing it together, different than residential. And then how do I get this team together in time to get all the pieces to work and close? Right. Some of the guys that come over from the residential space, I think they, you know, just because of what they've been doing, they get some anxiety going into commercial real estate because it's, you know, there's risk involved. Whereas, whereas like residential, you know what I mean? Like you get a pre-approval. That doesn't exist on this side, right? Like, and somebody somewhere has got to go off on a limb and put some money up at risk. Usually nobody wants to do that if they haven't, if they don't have all the money put together, you know what I mean? So, so sometimes, you know, with, with guys coming from residential space, you know, it, you, they get a little paralysis because of that. But, you know, I, I think if you're going into it and, you, you know, I, I think the first thing to do is solve your equity, right? Don't worry about the debt. The debt's there. I'll figure out the debt. It'll be competitive, but, but solve the equity, right? And, you know, get that piece in place. You're going to, if you're buying an asset, right, you're going to be able to give them at least some sort of mid-teens IRR. That's the way to do it. Go into it with the equity in place and not trying to solve it afterward. Right. Tell me more about the 506C. I think it is where you can have up to 35 non-accredited investors. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are going to, if you're trying to solve for between like one to two or maybe, maybe a half million to two or million bucks of equity on a property, I, I think, uh, you know, doing a 506C, getting in touch or crowdfunding side or getting in touch with like some sort of broker dealer that does basically write you up, right? Something like that. That's a great way to go. I, I know a lot of guys do like, uh, you know, like broker dealers that, you know, kind of market IRAs and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a great option, right? You put together 20,000, 50,000 bucks at a time and eventually it gets done. The challenge with that is as you grow, your reporting is a nightmare. Because now you've got three properties or four properties, but you got like 200 investors. But a lot of the guys that get kind of burned out from private investors like that, once you're at that level, I think then you can start looking towards more like JV fund type of financing. You know, whereas you're coming in with 10% of the equity, this JV fund is coming with 90%, right? And that's your value add deal. That's a little easier to deal with. You know, and I've walked several guys through that process. It just, you need a, a minimum, like the right critical mass size deal for that. And that starts in for a multifamily property, probably around like 10 million bucks, right? Because I mean, think about it. If I'm leveraging 85% of a $10 million product, it's only like a million and a half bucks around, right? Um, maybe two, three, if I include all the capex and everything. So you got to have at least that to really get to the right size. Um, and that's really the minimum. If you're trying to syndicate out more than probably like two and a half, three million bucks, you could probably start looking more towards like actual JV equity partners and funds that are going to come in with one slog into the whole thing. 
It's just those guys aren't going to do a million dollar piece. And I promise you, if there is somebody out there that's going to do it through a fund, it's going to be so expensive. It's not even going to make sense. Okay. And so that avoids the securities liability, right? Yeah. If you're, if you're, if you're syndicating, you're selling securities, right? That, that's an investment. Because again, you have your passive investors, right? And then you have your general partners. Exactly. Think about it this way. They have absolutely no say in what goes on. If it's a JV partner, you're the GP, the general partner, they're the limited partner. It's a partnership. So it's not really, if you're not selling security, right? You, you structure the partnership. So that one's a broker dealer type of thing. The other is a financial arrangement between partners. All right. Tell us more about other asset classes. I've kind of focused on multifamily, but where do you see the markets? And you know, is there a certain other asset class that you're seeing kind of a trend or deals coming in that you, you're intrigued with for the future? Yeah. Yeah. I'd like multifamily. Multifamily is always great. Always great right? yeah. People got to live somewhere. Yeah. So back in 2008, right? That's when we started quantitative easing. Basically, they pushed up asset prices. And homes became incredibly expensive. So people have turned more towards multifamily houses. This is the same thing on a shorter timeline with even more money. And you can see what's going on with residential right now through the room, right? As you do more QE and you pop, uh, pop up uh, asset prices, it just becomes more out of reach for like just the average guy to actually get in, right? So, and really what that means is you're going to lease more, right? So people are leasing more houses. People are renting more apartments, stuff like that. So I think, you know, multifamily in general is going to be just fine based on everything that's going on, right? Like the governmental push towards uh, propping up, you know, incomes in the lower segment of the economy and focusing more on, you know, the people that have been left behind. Um, I, I think the affordable housing sector is probably a great space right now because, you know, you really want to follow, especially when you're, you're dealing with something like housing, right? You want to follow what the local and federal governments are kind of going and doing and putting money to the, the Fed president was just talking about meeting with homeless people outside of the, you know, the federal. I mean, I, I think there's a strong focus on, you know, the, the lower uh, sector of, of the population. And I think that affordable housing and lower income housing sector is going to grow. There's going to be a lot of incentive that goes toward it. And I think ultimately that turns into rent growth. Yeah. Thank you for your time. We always ask our guests, your favorite real estate book. Is there a favorite book that you've read or you are reading that you could pass on that people would love to read? My favorite book series are the Freakonomics books. Love those great stories in there. I think there there's things that you can apply to, you know, all kinds of different industries and ways of thinking that come out of there. You know, as far as like real estate in general, I just read whatever's going on the news constantly all day. I probably read more real estate stuff than anybody I know. But, you know, it, that's how you stay up to date and know where the opportunity is. So, you know, just what, I, what I'd say to the viewers is, you know, get some RSS feeds, put some real estate stuff in there. Anything real estate investing, anything commercial real estate, it'll really show you what's going on. That's great. What about a real estate tip, investing tip? Follow local municipality dollars. If you are looking for, you know, areas where like what the next up and coming areas are or where you're expecting like neighborhoods to turn around or have good growth, look up the TIF maps in your areas. That's where the governments are giving away free money. Right. If you've got some cops that are friends, usually, you know, the cops know which which neighborhoods they've given directives to to kind of start clearing out. Those are going to be the biggest upside. Right. I mean, if you can get in front of a neighborhood that is going from, oh, my God, I wouldn't drive through there, you know, with uh, tinted windows and my doors locked during the day um, to, OK, you know, lower income, working class neighborhood now. I, I think that's that's going to you're going to get a lot of great upside there. Um, those are typically not huge deals, right? Those are good, you know, 500,000 something type of deals. But uh, if you get something that you picked up at a 15 cap because, you know, people had to wear a bulletproof vest there, 
sell it at an eight in two years because, you know, that, you know, there was a lot of TIF redevelopment money. And then, you know, they, the mayor turned around. That's, that's not bad. Other thing I'd say is when you're, when you're, and I've done this personally, we own multifamily too. I, you know, if you're going to go into a property and you need to do a lot of rehab, there's typically a lot of local government, maybe utility or incentives for mechanicals, right? For energy efficient upgrades, stuff like that. For instance, here in Chicago, I bought a property that needed a new uh, hot water tank and a new boiler through like some uh, government programs. We were able to get them at like 80% off. That's a great tip. Knowing your market, staying local and being ahead of uh, yeah, just kind of the trends of where things are going. Love that. Okay. So where can uh, people find you if they want to reach out and contact you? Yeah, absolutely. I am exceptionally easy to find. I'm on LinkedIn, 30,000 connections on the LinkedIn, so I'm easy to find there. Our website, plottingcapital.com, you can send us a contact form through there. Call the main number, reach out anytime. Well, thanks so much for your time, Jake, your input and wisdom. It's, it's awesome to have this expertise on our show, so I really appreciate it. Appreciate it, man. Likewise. That concludes this episode of the NOI Podcast, uncovering the path to successful real estate investing. Thanks for listening. If you are enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. We look forward to bringing you more great content. Till then, happy investing.